every reason indeed to praise the Lord, and I trust that is one of the things that we'll see uh, this morning as we open up together in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 15 through 18. Galatians chapter 3, uh, and verses 15 through uh, 18. Any that are visiting this morning, we've uh, on our morning worship services been going through Paul's epistle to the Galatians, which is uh, uh, one of the New Testament books, uh, one of the books which Paul the Apostle uh, wrote. And today we are in chapter 3 and verses 15 through 18. Galatians uh, chapter 3. And our verses today are verses 15 through 18. So let's now uh, hear God's holy word. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. Uh, The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This ends this reading in God's word. Seek the Lord now again in prayer. Lord, our uh, God in heaven, we uh, rejoice over this gospel uh, which was preached and proclaimed by covenant in the days of Abraham. A gospel which has been revealed in all of the fullness of its saving glory in these last days in which we live with the coming of Jesus Christ. We do pray, O Lord our God, today that we would, with a very real and fresh sense, uh, understand, Lord, how ancient these promises are and how faithful you are to keep every one of them. And Lord, that that would provide for us a real sure foundation for our faith. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible really is uh, an extraordinary, wonderful divinely inspired book. Now, this is not how 
the world, uh, which is often unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, thinks of it. Many people think of the Bible as, well, just filled with a bunch of uh, kind of disjointed stories. Uh, The Bible is sort of a record of man's attempts to relate to God. But that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is actually very different from that. It isn't the record of man's experiences of God, but rather it is God's book in which he reveals himself to man. And he does so in a remarkably coherent way. Though the Bible itself is a book that was written over many hundreds of years, Uh, with dozens of different human authors. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, these 66 books of the Old and New Testament uh, together tell one grand story. And it's a story from beginning to end that is centered on this theme. It is what God has done to save sinners through Jesus Christ. That's the story of the Bible from beginning to end. And it is one grand story. Now, you'll remember that what Paul is doing in the book of Galatians is he is arguing in this book that the gospel is a message which proclaims salvation by God's grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And Paul has argued for this gospel in a number of different ways. Uh, In the first couple of chapters of Galatians, Paul has asserted his own authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ to proclaim this gospel. Uh, Then at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul has appealed to the Galatians' own experience of how they received the Holy Spirit at first, and they ought to continue in the way that they first walked. Then, in Galatians 3, Paul then uh, appeals to the example of Abraham, and how even Father Abraham was one who was justified, that is, made right with God through faith. Then last week, uh, out of verses 10 through 14, we considered Uh, how it is impossible for any of us to be made right with God through the works of the law, because we're unable to keep them. And instead, how it was Jesus Christ who, through his atoning work, took upon himself the curse of the law so that we might be freed from it. So you see, in each of these different ways, Paul is arguing for the truth of the gospel. But now as we come to verse 15, and really uh, from verse 15 down through much of the remainder of uh, chapter 3, uh, Paul is now going to continue his argument, but by do it by bringing us uh, deep into the Old Testament. And he is going to show us how two great covenants shape the Old Testament, the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses. 
And what he's going to say is that when we understand these covenants, the covenant with Abraham and the covenant of Moses correctly, we will see that these covenants also point us to that truth of salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in, in Christ alone. Okay, so that's where we're headed uh, uh, in, these, in these verses. But today, in verses 15 through 18, the focus is going to be on the Abrahamic covenant. That is, the covenant which God made with Abraham. Now, before we jump into uh, these verses today, uh, and all of the points that these verses are going to make about this covenant with Abraham, allow me, first of all, to remind you of a little bit of history, because this history serves as sort of the necessary background to this passage. Uh, and this history begins for us back in uh, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. Or excuse me, the very first, yeah, first book of the Bible, Genesis, the book of Genesis in chapter 12. And you'll remember in Genesis chapter 12 how God called Abram out of that land of Ur of the Chaldees. Now, Abram was a pagan. He didn't know the true God. But God sovereignly and powerfully called Abram out of that foreign land and made promises to Abram. And so Genesis chapter 12 uh, and verses 2 and 3 contain those promises. God said to Abram, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so there we have promises which God sovereignly made uh, to Abram. And if we uh, just kind of summarize what these promises were and promises that were made elsewhere to Abram, essentially they are, on the one hand, a promise of an innumerable seed which would descend from Abram. It's the promise as well of a land which he would be given as an inheritance. And it's a promise of worldwide blessing that would come through him. These promises were made to Abram. And they were made in the form, ultimately, of a covenant. If you were to turn to Genesis 15, there we won't look at it in detail, but there we would see how a covenant was made with Abram. It was confirmed and ratified in a kind of covenant-making ceremony where God himself would walk through the pieces of an animal and pledge that he himself would keep this covenant with Abraham. And then in Genesis chapter 17, circumcision is given as an outward sign of this covenant which God had made. And so this covenant which God had made with Abraham was a covenant which was unconditional. It, it tells us what God was going to do even apart from Abraham's obedience. And it was a covenant which was perpetual. That is, it was uh, a given to Abraham, but then confirmed to Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob as a covenant which God would keep. Now, if you know uh, the rest of your Old Testament history, you know that then 
Uh, Jacob and his family were brought to the land of Egypt. In that land of Egypt, far away from the land of promise, they were in a state of slavery. And then God, in faithfulness to his covenant made to Abraham, rescued them out of slavery in Egypt in the Exodus and brought them again to the land of promise. And under Moses, then, God made an additional covenant, one that we would call the Mosaic Covenant, where he gave the law through Moses to the Israelites on uh, Mount Sinai. But we're going to see more of that and the covenant with Moses next week. Uh, So that is some of the history uh, that lies behind what the Apostle Paul is describing here in Galatians 3 and verse 15. He's here referring to this covenant that God had made with Abraham, a covenant that was a covenant of promise, a covenant that contained promises which God would fulfill. And so Paul is going to open up this covenant here and show how the gospel which he proclaimed is consistent with this covenant that was made with Abraham. And so we're going to look at what Paul says about it under three different headings today. First of all, uh, in verses 15 and 17, we are going to see that there are promises which aren't annulled. Promises which aren't annulled. Then secondly, out of verse 16, we're going to consider promises which are given to Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, out of verse 18, we will consider promises which guarantee our inheritance. Promises which aren't annulled. Promises which are given to Jesus Christ. Thirdly, promises which guarantee our inheritance. Well, the first uh, point that Paul makes is that this covenant with Abraham contains promises which are not annulled. And the main point of what he's saying here is actually found in verse 17. Look with me at that, verse 17. There, Paul says, this is what I mean that the law which came 430 years afterward, that is, the law which was given on Mount Sinai to Moses, the Mosaic law, which was given 430 years afterward, and that's what the book of Exodus tells us, was the time between the patriarchs and the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, that that Mosaic law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. What's that covenant? Well, that's the covenant with Abraham. Okay? So the giving of the law does not cancel out or make void or annul the covenant that was given to Abraham so as to make the promises void. And so when the law of Moses came, it did not say, well, All those promises given to Abraham, they no longer count for anything. They're no longer to be kept. Or they're to be kept on the basis of your obedience rather than simply the promise of God. His point is, is that is not the case. That's not how it works. But rather, the covenant promise made with Abraham remains even after giving the law. Well, you say, 
Well, why is this the case? Well, he goes on to make an illustration. Well, he, does, he actually does the illustration first. In verse 15, uh, an illustration from uh, kind of our human experience. There in verse 15, he says this. Well, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Well, commentators have spilled all sorts of ink over uh, what Paul is referring to here. Uh, The word for covenant is a word that can either, in the Greek, mean a testament, as in like a last will and testament, or it can refer to a covenant, as in a kind of binding agreement between uh, two parties. And I won't go into all the ins and outs of what the best way possibly is to translate it. I actually think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter much that the point remains either way. And the point is this, if we translate this as in a testament or a will, when there is a man-made testament, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And here again, commentators go into kind of Greek and Roman law. Are you allowed to change your will once you have made it? And this kind of thing. But I think even more fundamentally what it's saying is that when the person who made the will dies... That will remains. Okay, whatever the will says, that's how the good, that's how the inheritance is going to be distributed, right? And so you have a, a relative that, that passes away. That relative made a will. Your relative passes away. They, they read the will. Everybody sees what's in the will. And you might not like what the will says, but the will remains. It's ratified. It stands. It can't be changed. Parties can't come in and say, well, we didn't like the way that they left all of their... It is what it is. That testament is ratified. It cannot be changed or annulled. And so that's what he could be saying here. Or he could be speaking here of a covenant, a kind of man-made agreement or covenant that people... Uh, enter into it, and the point is that that also cannot be annulled or added to once it has been ratified, and I think there the point would be uh, that one of the parties who decides they no longer like the agreement into which they've entered can't come and say, well, I'm going to change the terms of it. No, once an official pact or agreement or covenant has been made, that stands. Okay, it's as it were signed, sealed, and delivered. And Paul's point is, is that in the area of human events, human wills or human covenants, uh, we consider certain agreements to be binding, perpetual, continuing. They've been ratified. They can't be easily changed. And he is saying that if that is how it is in the area of human covenants and agreements or human wills, how much more in terms of the covenant promises which God makes. For if you think about God's covenant promises, okay, God's covenant is one which is entered into, here we use the word unilaterally, which means that God in making covenants 
doesn't enter into a bargaining process with mankind over what that covenant will contain, but rather it depends solely on God. Uh, The theologian O. Palmer Robertson famously has called covenants a bond in blood sovereignly administered. There the point is, is that there is a bond, a covenant bond, in blood, that is, uh, that there is uh, death or the promise or, or the, uh, the threat of death to the one who would break the covenant, but it's sovereignly administered. That is, it is administered by God. God is the one who, in terms of biblical covenants, enters into covenant arrangements. And was that not the case with Abram? God called Abram. God made promises to Abram. God ratified the covenant with Abram. God gave to Abraham that covenant sign of circumcision. It was God's doing. It was God's activity. And so the point is, if that, if it is the case that human bonds like this are not broken, how much more so the bonds which are sovereign, unchanging God enters into. And so when God makes gracious promises toward His people, those promises do not change. When God promises and says that this promise depends on me and on my faithfulness and on what I'm going to do, God does not then later change the terms of that promise and say, well, it's up to you and to your obedience. The law, 430 years later, does not cancel out the promises which were made to Abraham. And that gives us great assurance, dear friends, as God's people, that we serve a God who is faithful from one generation to the next, whose ways of dealing with his people has been by grace. This is one of the great errors of a system called dispensationalism, a, a system of how to read the scriptures, because dispensationalism says that God has dealt with his people differently in all of these different ages. In different ways, he's dealt with us. And and that's just not the case. The Bible here in Galatians 3 makes it clear that God made gracious promises to Abraham. And when the law came, God still had gracious promises that he had given that were not canceled out. And as we're going to see when Jesus Christ comes, he comes as the fulfillment of these gracious promises that were given to Abraham. It's the same God who deals with his people in the same way. And I don't know about you, but for me, in a world that sometimes seems so topsy-turvy, where things change at such a rapid pace, how good it is to know that my God and his purposes of salvation are things that have not changed. They remain the same. He is still faithful, and he will be faithful to the end. And if, when God says something, he accomplishes it. He does it. If God makes promises to Abraham, then he is a God who will fulfill all of his promises. He is steadfast. He is unchanging. He is reliable. Uh, that is the God uh, that we serve. And so God made promises in the days of Abraham that are promises which remain. They were not canceled or made null and void 
by the giving of the law. This moves us now, secondly, then, to this point, is that this covenant with Abraham contains promises which are given to Jesus Christ. Promises which are given to Jesus Christ. Verse 16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. We could translate that word, the word seed, Abraham and to his seed. Then Paul goes on to say, very interestingly, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. What is the point that Paul's making? Now, Paul has many critics at this point that say he is really engaging in some really bad interpretation of the Old Testament. They say, does not Paul know that the word offspring or seed is actually a collective noun? That it's singular, but it's singular referring to a multitude or a group of things. So if you were to use the word seed in the English language, we say, this fall I am planning on planting some grass seed. I'm not going to say I'm going to plant some grass seeds. I say seed, I'm not just doing one of them, doesn't do much good, right? But grass seed is a lot, it's a collective noun, that's the way that that works. So what is Paul, is he so elementary? Does he not realize that this is a collective noun, the word offspring or seed? Well, Paul isn't that stupid, friends, okay? Actually, later... In this same passage, in chapter 3 and verse 29, Paul is going to use the same exact word in a collective way. And if you are Christ, verse 29, then you are, you are, not just one of you who is a believer, but all of you who are believers, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Same word, right? Heirs according to promise. So Paul knows his grammar, okay? And there he realizes this is a collective noun. Offspring can refer to one, or it can refer to many. What is his point then here in verse 16 about this word offspring being a singular? And I think his point is this, friends. His point is, is that God in his sovereign purposes chose a word here which can refer both to a singular, you can refer to an offspring or a seed as in one person, or it can be a collective, a group. And it's the same word in either case. And so in making this promise to Abraham and to his seed, it's a word which can refer to both. (laughs) And Paul is saying here that there is a necessary application to a singular seed, which is Christ, and as he's going to say then in chapter 3 and verse 29, to all who are in Christ, who also then are the seed or the descendants of Abraham. Now, how can he be so sure that this 
offspring of Abraham does refer to a singular. And here what Paul is doing is he is thinking of this promise made to Abraham in light of the full biblical revelation. God made a declaration in Genesis 3 and verse 15, right after mankind fell in Adam into sin, God made a promise that there was going to be a seed, same word, of a woman. And that seed, singular, he, it says, would crush or bruise the head of the serpent. So the promise of a seed of the woman was referring to a particular individual who was going to come and who himself would crush the head of the serpent. And who is that? Well, ultimately, it is a prophecy, is it not, of the coming Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, it is that same uh, prophecy of a coming Messiah, of a coming conqueror, of uh, coming, as Isaiah would, would later say, a servant of the Lord. Okay, and you just go through the Old Testament prophecies. There's prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that is referring to a coming Messiah whom the Lord is going to send, who is going to win salvation for his people. And Paul's point is, is that when the covenant made with Abraham refers to Abraham and to his seed, it also is making reference to this promise of this coming Messiah. It is a promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Matthew chapter 1, in verse 1, the very first verse after 400 years of silence, we read this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That here indeed is Abraham's seed to whom the promise was made. And so that covenant made with Abraham is consistent with everything else that we read in the Old Testament of this coming Messiah. He would also be a seed of David who would, uh, who would ha- inhabit a, a, an eternal, th- who would sit on an eternal throne. Okay, it's the same seed. It's the Messiah, and it is to him that all of these covenant promises are made. And so the covenant with Abraham is one which is fulfilled supremely in the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then in Jesus Christ, all who belong to him. And so all of the blessings of this Abrahamic covenant come to God's people in and through uh, the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. The true seed of Abraham, then, are those who are united to Jesus Christ. And so, uh, the book of Genesis never even had in view that it was chiefly Abraham's physical descendants who were the recipients of these promises. But rather, rather, who are the recipients of these promises Well, ultimately, it is this seed who would come as the Messiah of His people and then all who have faith in this Messiah, faith like Father Abraham had faith, but in Jesus Christ. They, indeed, are uh, the seed of Abraham. And so this is why our Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, number 31, this is... uh, Uh, Westminster Larger Catechism number 31 asks this question. 
me get there. It says, with whom was the covenant of grace made? There the answer is that the covenant of grace was made with Christ as a second Adam. And in him, that is in Christ, with all the elect as his seed. And so the blessings come to God's people always and only through Jesus Christ. That's what the covenant with Abraham teaches. That was always the purpose of it. So the law does not cancel out this covenant. Rather, the covenant points us to Jesus Christ in whom all these covenant promises are going to be fulfilled. And it's just another reminder, friends, of why all of the Bible is focused and centered upon Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus with those disciples on the road to Emmaus after he had been resurrected, how he showed them in the scriptures how it was that the Christ must suffer these things, be resurrected and enter into his glory. All of the scriptures are Christ-centered. And friends, that is the beauty of it all. This whole story from beginning to end, even in the days of Abraham, ultimately are about what God was going to do through Jesus Christ. All of it is centered on Christ. The Bible makes much of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And that's why we must make much of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, as well. We cannot think of Him too highly. We cannot love Him too much. We cannot trust in Him too much. For all of God's covenant promises come to us through Jesus, the seed of Abraham. So these are promises which are given to Jesus Christ and which come to us ultimately in Him. But now thirdly, thirdly, I want us to consider promises which guarantee our inheritance. Promises which guarantee our inheritance. We see this finally in verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Here he is making, he's drawing a clear distinction between two different ways that these promises could possibly come to us. Either they come to us by God's free gift, or they come by us earning them. Either they come by promise, or they come by performance. He is saying, and he's going to get next week, you understand, what the purpose of the law is. Why, if it is of God's free gift, was the law even given? We're going to get up to all of that next week. Okay, And the law is not given, we're going to see, as an alternate means of salvation for you and for me. That was, God's never, that was never God's purpose. The law does not cancel out the promise. But now, the point is this today. Do you see, dear friends, that these covenant promises that were given to Abraham, given ultimately to Jesus Christ, come to us not by us earning them, not by us securing favor with God, but always and only by God's free gift to us. Well, what is the inheritance that this is referring to when it speaks here of an inheritance? 
that is ours. An inheritance which had been promised to Abraham. Well, was that inheritance the land of Canaan? Well, in a certain sense it was. But that land of Canaan was only ever a type or a picture of a greater inheritance which God was to give His people. And that's what the book of Hebrews makes clear in Hebrews chapter 11 and talking about Abraham and and Abraham's faith. It said, by faith, verse 8 of Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And why did Abraham have his eyes set upon the promise of the inheritance? Why did he believe that it would be his? It says, verse 10, for he was looking forward, not just to that land of Canaan, but to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then later it says, verse 13, speaking of Abraham and of others, that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. As it is, verse 16, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Do you see what that is saying? It's saying, dear friends, all of these old covenant promises, it was not simply a promise of a parcel of land in this age, on this earth, for Abraham in a Middle East, in the Middle East, but rather that the promise, the inheritance, was always much greater than that, that that land was a picture of a heavenly inheritance which would belong not just to Abraham, but to all of Abraham's seed, that is, those who are in Jesus Christ, will receive this inheritance. And so ultimately, the inheritance, friends, is talking about an inheritance that consists in nothing less than salvation itself. That to be an heir is to be an heir of salvation. That to be an heir is to have the promised Holy Spirit dwell in us. That to be an heir means ultimately that what we will have possession of is nothing less than heaven itself where God dwells and we will dwell in His presence forever. It is an inheritance, as 1 Peter speaks of it, that is imperishable and undefiled and does not fade away that is reserved in heaven for us. That we are citizens now of a better country Heavenly citizens. And that is the inheritance that is ours. We are heirs, as the Bible speaks of it, heirs of eternal life. That is life that is abundant. Life that is free. Life that is glorious in God's presence. World without end forevermore. That is the inheritance which the children of Abraham ultimately receive. And how do we receive it, friends? Not by the law not by what we have done. But, and it was this way with Abraham, and it has always been this way, it is received simply by faith alone. 
in Jesus Christ. So let me close this sermon today in a couple of different ways. First of all, by speaking to any of you here today who do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I say to you today to look to Jesus Christ because all of God's promises are found in Him. That it was in the days of Abraham, we read of it, it was promises that were given that were to be received. And how do we receive this inheritance, which God has promised from long ago? Well, it is by simple faith. It is not something that we earn. We can't do enough works to earn it. It's not by being a really good Christian or by doing all of the right things or dressing in a certain way or speaking in a certain way or giving off a certain impression that we receive this inheritance. It's not by cleansing our own hearts and making them right that we receive this inheritance. It has never been by those things. But it has always, always been by looking to the Lord and simply receiving from Him this free gift of eternal life. It's simple faith, simple trust in Jesus Christ of coming to the Lord with all of your sin, all of your uncleanness and all of your worries and all of your fears and all of the ways in which you've been disobedient to God and the ways that you have let Him down and you come to the Lord with all of that. And as it were, you lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, I cannot save myself. I've never been able to save myself. Here, I simply trust in you. I believe that Jesus has done what I could not do for myself. All of these promises are true in him. You look simply to Jesus Christ and believe. And that's it. That's the good news of the gospel message. And you say, you say, it's too easy. Praise the Lord who sovereignly saves us. The point is that you can't do anything to, to secure it on your own. It's, it's through faith in the gift that he gives in the gospel. It was that way in the days of Abraham. It is that way today as well. But let me say a second word. And it is for those who are Christians, but who do feel so overwhelmed at times. Overwhelmed at times by your own sin. Overwhelmed by the temptations which Satan throws in your path. Overwhelmed by the trials and difficulties that you are facing in this life, and it seems like such a mountain of stuff, and you wake up in the morning and you're thinking of it, and you fall asleep at night and you're thinking of it, and it feels like such a burden that is pressing down on you every moment. What are you to do? What are you to do? Can I say today, dear friends, that you are to rest simply? in this gracious God who gives us everything that we need, not by our doing, but by his free gift, by his 
promise. And so when things mount up against us, we're going to sing in just a few moments. Okay. And Satan shall buffet when trials shall come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Why does the Lord bring us through trials? We don't always know everything. Does he teach us things through trials? Yeah, he does. Does he mean to strengthen our faith through trials? Yes, he does. You know, the most important thing about any of the trials that we face or any of the temptations that we endure, the most important truth is this. It is the knowledge that your loving, gracious God is going to carry you through all of this. And the first lesson is not what you must do or what you must become, but it is about what your God is doing through it all. He is with you. You see, it has always been, the promises have always been by God's free gift. Always. Not our works, but by his gift. Can we rely on that? Can we give praise to a God who sees fit to carry us through, to bring us through the the, the most difficult times? And, And dear friends, that ought to encourage us also about the hope that lies ahead of us. For even as God has been faithful to all of his promises so far, by his unconditional covenant, he will be faithful to that final promise also of the return of our Lord and of the making of all things new. O Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. Clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that as it was in the days of Abraham, so it is today. That you are a God who gives gracious promises that are centered in Jesus Christ. And promises which will never, ever, ever be annulled. We thank you that they were not annulled when the Mosaic Law was given. We are thankful, O Lord, that they are not annulled today, but instead are being gloriously fulfilled through this gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, our God in heaven, we do pray that we would remember that this inheritance which was promised is ours by your free gift alone. Might we rejoice in that. Rejoice at grace undeserved. Rejoice in grace abounding. Rejoice in grace that is given even to us. In our day. O Lord, our God in heaven, use your word in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.